Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. This is Matt Snow from Magnus Rising, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Hey, this is Vivian Campbell, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Mark Striegel. John Astronomy. The Talking Metal Podcast. Coming to you from the Silver Spacecraft. I'm Bud Friendly. And now, your hosts, Mark and John. Hey, it's John Astronomy here, hanging out in Midtown Manhattan with my co-host, Mark Striegel, for Talking Metal, episode 422. Hey, Mark. Hey, John, how are you? We have Matt Snow on the show today, Vivian Campbell on the show today. If you like Talking Metal interviews, this is a good show for you. There's a lot of uh, cool stuff that's going to be said by Matt and Vivian, so stay tuned for both of those interviews. Right now, let's get into a little Magnus Rising. This is Whatever It Takes.
What you just heard was Whatever It Takes by Magnus Rising. We have the bassist of Magnus Rising on the show today. His name is Matt Snow. We're going to get into an interview with him momentarily. And also, a little bit later, Vivian Campbell from Dio, Whitesnake, River Dogs, and of course, Def Leppard. Yeah, Vivian Campbell, what an amazing guitar player. Mark, you've been doing an amazing job at doing these interviews, but why don't we get right into the interview with Matt Snow? Hey, this is Mark Striegel from Talking Metal, and on the line today we have Matt Snow calling in from Canada. You're out in Vancouver right now, Matt? Yes, indeed. Cool. Beautiful BC. I want to talk about your great band. I was very impressed with the new Magnus Rising release. It is called Whatever It Takes. It is linked through today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com for all the Talking Metal listeners. Let's talk about the band itself. You guys originally are actually from the other coast of Canada, the East Coast. You're calling in from Vancouver today. But let's talk about the what brought you from one coast of Canada to uh, the other. Well, we started back in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, around 2002, and uh, you know, we played there for a number of years, and uh, realized, you know, once we got so far that, you know, we kind of needed to move to a bigger market for our style of music, so we had contemplated, uh, you know, maybe moving to Toronto or Vancouver, but, uh, I mean, just the, the people and the, the life out here in nature, we, you know, we decided that Vancouver was the best choice, had a great scene, and we all packed up and moved up here. Now, since we got here, we've gone through a couple drummers, but we met our longtime drummer now, Nick James, up here. He's actually from B.C., but uh, together with myself and Aaron and Roger, all from Newfoundland. Very cool, Matt. And now your last record, Counting the Numbers, came out a while ago at this time. That was back in 2008. Whatever It Takes, the brand new record, or fairly new record at this point, came out in 2013. Why such a long stretch uh, between records, and what was going on for the past five years? Well, once we finished uh, Counting the Numbers, that was that was our real first big uh, long play record, so we wanted to kind of push that one as much as we could. We ended up doing a fair number of trips around, short tours and uh, road trips around Western Canada, and playing lots of shows in Vancouver just to kind of, you know, uh, get our sound out there and get our name out there in the scene. I mean, we had spent so many years back in Newfoundland that we kind of had to start from the, the ground up again with the fan base. So we took our time with that one, definitely, and uh, allowed ourselves a lot of time to start working on new material. Once we had a, a collection of new songs for the new album that were really starting to come together, we ended up going in the studio, and we spent uh, over two years working on the new record. Uh, there's a lot of work put into this one to make sure that it had a real uh, kind of an old school analog feel that everything felt raw and as you know live linear playing no comping things together and cutting and pasting so that kind of approach certainly lent itself to take a lot more time in the studio in the end though i think with the sound and the compositions we got out of it it was definitely the right decision just uh, one that certainly took a, a fair bit of time out of us cool and when you say analog does that mean you're actually physically recording to to tape? We did use tape in the studio. Uh, I mean, of course, a lot of it was recorded uh, using different software and uh, equipment, but uh, there was always a sense that even if it was going to be done like some of my DIs in Pro Tools, that uh, it would be done in a, a fashion as if you were recording to tape. And 
if the take didn't work, we would start at the beginning and we would go again and we would try to get it in one straight run as much as we could at least. Small edit, I might have to do a punch in here or there, but it was largely start to finish for our tracks to give it that, that sort of a live feel, which has always been a huge, huge part of our sound. Now, speaking of your sound, I mean, when I listen to you guys, I hear, like, you know, besides the great songwriting and, and playing you guys do, I'm talking about just stylistically, I hear a very loud, heavy rock band. But, you know, things get broken down into so many subgenres today. Where where do you feel you guys fall? Do you, do you consider yourself, like, the stoner rock vibe or sludge rock or just pretty much straight ahead hard rock, where would you place Magnus Rising in the categories of hard rock music? You know, that, that's all such a hard question. I mean, everything, people love to have things summed up in genres and, you know, it's something that's neat and easy and packaged. To, you know, you can just understand, oh, this band is metal or this band is hard rock and you can go and find bands that you know you're going to like, but with the way the genres are now, I mean, there's so much blurring between styles and everybody is influenced by so many different things that, I mean, if I were to search up, uh, you know, what is the top metal bands right now, you would hear a sound that is distinctly different than what we're doing. But, for, I mean, since we started, it doesn't really feel like we've shifted away from necessarily being a metal band or being a hard rock band. It's always been uh, kind of more of an approach to just writing the songs that we would love to hear, that we would love for someone to write, the, the kind of music that really gets us. And, I guess now, I feel like if you have to, to put it in, it would be just straight-ahead hard rock. I mean, if people call bands like Ozzy and that, you know, and Motorhead, you know, getting classified as hard rock, well, you know, I would think we would fall into that sort of a vein. You know, clean vocals, no screaming, big, heavy riffs, lots of melody, different things like that. It's, it can get a little limiting when you try and pick one genre to go with, so we try and leave ourselves open. I think uh, the title of hard rock really lends itself to that. Cool. Now, you... You mentioned you guys spent uh, many years, actually two years, in the studio working on the record. Did you work with a certain producer, or is this self-produced, the uh, whatever-it-takes record? We worked with uh, the producer and engineer, Dave Sloat. He, uh, he was there throughout the entire process. Of course, when it came to songwriting, I mean, the band, we would all come together working on the risk. He would always have his input on where the songs might go, different ways to do energies. He was largely involved in helping with vocal melodies and construction. So he, he definitely played a huge role. In this. It was entirely him and the band. Cool. And I love the album cover with the boxer on it. What what uh, inspired that image? Well, I mean, the title of the the album and and you know main track, uh, whatever it takes, is really a huge part of the mentality of Magnus Rising. I mean, it's you know when people talk about the overnight success and just becoming a blockbuster. I mean, that's you know simply not a reality for the vast majority of bands. And we have always had this uh, just do whatever we need to do to get it done sort of a mentality. Whatever sacrifices need to be made, you know, uh, getting up and moving entirely across the country certainly wasn't easy, but it was something we felt we needed to do to help the band progress. So we've always been very much all or nothing. The only reason you fail is if you give up sort of a thing. The, uh, the idea of that, you know, it can be uh, construed in with the, the idea of a prize fighter. You know, no prize fighter is ever there to be, okay, you know, I'm the 10th seed. Yeah, that's good enough for me. You know, they all want to be the best. Right. And they're all going to sacrifice that, and they're going to fight. And this has been our fight for well, the last 10, 11 years now. We've, uh, the three of us have been together, and Nick now going on five years. It's, 
been so long since we've been up here, but uh, it's it's always been that mentality. There is no quit. There is no give up. And once we do that, then we fail. So was Nick on, Nick the drummer, of course, was he on the Counting the Numbers record, or was, that was somebody else? No, that was uh, released just before Nick joined the band. Ah, we, uh, we had a, a studio session drummer, uh, Kelly Stadola, on that record. Okay, cool. And I know... You know, touring and uh, even playing gigs for like an independent band that isn't on a major label with tour support and all this stuff can be sometimes challenging on, on a number of levels. What are you guys going to do gig-wise and touring-wise? I know you already played uh, some gigs for support of the new record, but is there more touring planned at this point? Yes, we're going to be trying to get as much as we can now in the end of the summer and early fall. We're going to be in Drumheller, Alberta, actually, uh, in the end of August for the Loud as Hell Metal Festival. Cool. And uh, hoping to set up some more days right now. They're in the works for around that time and into the early fall. Uh, winter time is hard to go away, so basically it's a, it's a spring and summer kind of a deal here because of the mountains. But uh, definitely going to be getting a few new shows and hopefully announced in the next few weeks. Cool. And where is the best place for the Talking Metal listener to find out about shows? Is it a Facebook page, a website? You can check our Facebook page. It's you, know, you just search Magnus Rising on Facebook. It's the uh, aside from uh, one of our fans in Sweden who has the same name as us, it's the only one you'll find on there. Right. Cool. Uh, you can also go to MagnusRising.com. We'll have updates there regularly. Whenever something is announced, we will put it up there, either by myself or our web uh, web designer. And uh, also the Twitter mag- at Magnus Rising. Cool. Now, who's your web designer? Since we know, uh, Michael Martin. Michael Martin, He's a who I think is the, the guy who actually helped hook this interview up for us. Absolutely. You guys were talking there, uh, I guess that was a few weeks ago now, and uh, he managed to mention and pass it along. We dropped you the line. Very much appreciated. He's yeah. always worked really hard for us, and uh, like I say, we've known him since you know, we were back in Newfoundland. Very old friend. Awesome. The record, again, I think sounds great, and earlier we played a song off the record called Whatever It Takes, and I want to end the interview today with a song called Smoke Damage. But before we get into that, I want to talk to you uh, about the video clip you guys have up uh, for Smoke Damage, a live performance of you playing that. It's currently up on your website. And a few things about the video that I had uh, questions on. The the Rickenbacker bass that you're playing, is that your, your primary instrument and is that all you play, Ricks, or do you play other bi- types of basses, too? Uh, that is absolutely my primary bass. I've had that thing, I guess, probably six years now, and just absolutely love it. It's the sound, the look, the feel, everything I've, I've ever wanted in a bass. They're incredibly well-built. And uh, I do have a couple other basses that I use. I also have a Spectre 5 string, but uh, that really doesn't come into the set nearly as much now. A lot of my playing has really moved towards the, uh, the finger style of bass and slap and different elements like that, which definitely just sound a lot better and a lot clearer on the Rickenbacker. And who are some of your biggest influences as bass players? Oh, and the, the list gets long with that. Uh, topping off the list would be James Lamento. Uh, he played with Pride and Glory, Zach Wilde, Southern Rock Band. He's been with Megadeth, White Lion. And uh, just a, a very interesting and very a, a clever bassist. He he's one of the few guys I know that while Zach Wilde is taking the solo, he'll take one as well. But uh, always been a very full sound, yet leaves a lot open room for guitars and different melodies. Cool. Same with guys like uh, Tim Comerford, Rage Against the Machine, 
and, and audio slate. I mean, it was always these huge, full, groove-laden riffs, but there was always room for the guitars and vocals. It's a very big part of it. Right on. And the video that you guys have posted that I mentioned earlier for Smoke Damage, yeah. where was that shot? Oh, yeah, the Smoke Damage video. That was recorded live, actually. That was an outdoor show at the Whistler Ski Snowboard Festival in uh, Whistler earlier this year. Uh, it, was a, it was a great event. It was done by uh, a bunch of... Uh, actually, that was set up by a production company from Whistler, a local company that has just started uh, getting a lot bigger and tied on with the larger uh, festival to create a B stage and get more local acts involved in the festival. It was an excellent opportunity. It was a little bit of a, a cold day up on the mountain, but it was, it was definitely an excellent time. Yeah, I've been up to Whistler a few times. A beautiful, beautiful country up there. And uh, if you haven't been to Whistler, guys, definitely... Make a trip up there, do some skiing or snowboarding, or go there in the summer where it sounds like they have uh, rock bands playing occasionally. So, you guys recently shot a video too, like an actual music video? Yes, indeed. We uh, just finished recording the video for uh, The Drill. It's going to be the first video release off the record. We did it with uh, Gene Greenwood, who is an amazing video producer. He's worked with some of the best in the world. And uh, we set this one up because it had the real rock element to the uh, to the song. It wasn't your heavy metal song. It wasn't thrashy. It was big. It was dirty. It was groovy. And we we had so much fun from doing uh, guitar solos in the back of cars with the top down to girls and dancing and bar shots. It was it was just an amazing time. It was it was fun to actually really record just a rock video. Awesome, cool! I can't wait to see that. Is, is the the video not done yet, though? You're still editing and working on it. The, it's all been taped. We're in the editing process right now, hoping that will be released very soon. Cool. Well, definitely send me a link uh, when it's up, and I will pass it along to the Talking Metal listeners. All right, we're going to get into a song called "Smoke Damage" right now, and please support these guys. Magnus Rising is the band. Whatever it takes is the album. And we're going to have links that'll take you right to the album on iTunes, where you can purchase downloads of the record. The album is also, I noticed, on Spotify. If you're a Spotify subscriber, you can check it out there. And what about CDs? You guys, I'm sure, have physical CDs that can be ordered online. Absolutely. We're in the, still getting the uh, online store set up to work properly on the website. They are available through us, and of course, that shows. As soon as uh, the copies are made available, you will, there will be an update on the website to let everyone know how to get it, and we will get them to you as soon as possible. Cool. This is Smoke Damage by Magnus Rising, and stay tuned, guys, because later in the episode, we are going to play the, the other song we were just talking about, Drill. Cool. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark.
contracts of regret not forgotten. I was at fault, there's no mistaking. The upstanding morals and demons, the bet that you make is you're still dreaming. For the first time, then the next time, when will it? What you just heard was Smoke Damage by Magnus Rising. Big thanks to Matt Snow for calling in to Talking Metal. Stay tuned, guys. We have an interview coming up with Vivian Campbell. Right now, I'm going to get into an email that says, Hey, Mark, good podcast on Queensryche. One of the main issues I've had with them is the past three studio albums from Operation Mindcrime 2 and on is the fact that producer Jason Slater is one of the main songwriters. Check the writing credits on Wikipedia. Personally, I like Jeff Tate's solo CD. I guess he's referring to the Queensryche Jeff Tate CD. And oddly enough, the two songs I like the most on Jeff's CD are tracks one and five, which happen to be co-written by Lucas Rossi. I am liking both Queensryche CDs, but leaning towards the one with the more original members. Much 
it much rather has the classic Queensryche sound. Cool. Uh, Gerardo, I guess is his name, right? Yeah, it's Gerardo or Gerardio. Uh, it's spelled D-I-O at the end, so maybe that's a, a hidden D-O tribute. Could be. Yeah, and Lucas Rossi, of course, uh, the guy you're referring to who wrote some of the songs with Jeff, was on rock, the Rockstar TV show with Tommy Lee, Jason Newstead, and Gilby Clark, and also has a band called Switchblade Glory. So thanks for checking in. Guys, keep the Talking Metal emails coming to TalkingMetal at Yahoo.com. A big thanks to David Isaac for a PayPal donation. If you want to make a PayPal donation, go to TalkingMetal.com. You can support the show by doing that. Right now, let's get into a little Vivian Campbell and JoLynn Turner playing the classic Stone Cold, made famous by, of course, Rainbow. That was Stone Cold by Vivian Campbell and JoLynn Turner. So, Mark, why don't we get right into your interview with Vivian Campbell, and then we're going to hear 
a little undefeated by Def Leppard right before the interview. Sounds good, John. Hey, this is Mark Striegel with Talking Metal, and on the line we have Vivian Campbell. Vivian, thanks for calling in today. My pleasure, Mark. Lovely to talk to you. I wanted to, first of all, check in with you on your health. Uh, a little over a month ago on your Facebook page, you mentioned that you have Hodgkin's lymphoma. How are you doing health-wise? I'm doing very well, all things considered, you know. Um, just um, taking it as it comes. The, the treatments are doing the job. And they're not uh, adversely affecting me too much, you know. Um, had a, to get a radical new hairstyle, and it's coming out fast still. But, you know, other than that, no real problems. The two or three days around the chemo treatments are a little rough, but nothing I can't handle. Right. I saw a picture of you uh, actually on your Facebook page uh, in front of a plane in, uh, I think, Spain or somewhere. And, and I thought you looked great with the uh, the shorter hair. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Except in another few weeks, there's going to be no hair. Oh, okay. <laughs> leaving most of it on my pillow in the morning, you know. Wow. It comes out fast. Anyway, but it's all good. You know, it's quite liberating. I needed a grown-up haircut anyway. Right. And you've been out playing with Def Leppard, so you're obviously well enough to uh, go out on the road with them. I believe you're playing in New York State tonight. How have the uh, the recent Def Leppard shows been going for you? Shows have been going great, you know. It um, actually kind of, it all happened a little haphazardly. We weren't supposed to work this summer at all, um, but we got offered a, a festival date in France, and um, we agreed to, to take that on. And then, of course, the management from the agents were saying, well, well, while you're over there, why don't you play these shows in Spain? And we went, well, okay, we'll do that. And you know, we got this great offer from Scandinavia. Why don't you go up there and do a few shows? So, and, then, and then on your way back, why don't you... <laughs> So it's kind of never ended. We had to draw a line under it at some stage. So, yes, tonight is the last show. We're at a place called Canadegua in uh, upstate New York. It's near Rochester. Um, we've never played here specifically before, but uh, we're just we're at the hotel, so we're going to head over to sign check in a while. And uh, that's the story. It's been going great. Um, and sounding good. You know, when that's it for this year, we're done now. Um, we will be active again next year. You never know. In the meantime, we might even 
get our proverbial finger out of our proverbial ass and write and record a few new songs. Oh, wow, that'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah, I saw you guys probably about a year ago in Newark, New Jersey, with uh, you know the Lita Ford Poison Def Leppard show, and that was a lot of fun. We always love seeing Def Leppard play live. I wanted to get into your band, Last in Line, talk a little bit about that and a little bit about your history with Dio. For me and many other metalhead kids growing up in the 80s, those first three Dio albums were such an important part of our formative years. And we all know that you and Ronnie weren't on the greatest of terms post your time in Dio. Was his passing something that helped you maybe finally be able to revisit and and rediscover how special that work you did with him actually was? I think so, yeah. I mean, I don't think that... Uh, in and of itself was the only reason, but I definitely think that that contributed to it. You know, the fact that that Dio, as a band, were no longer an active thing, and then I, I kind of looked and I saw this advertisement somewhere for Dio Disciples, right? Who, as it turns out, are going out and playing Dio songs, and and you know, there were none of the guys who were in the original band, and I, I thought, well, that's you know, why should those guys be doing it? You know, it's like. I wrote those songs, you know, I played on those records. So, um, but the, no, to be honest, the, the, the main catalyst for all of this for me personally was playing with Ben Lizzie. You know, I did a stint in 2011 right. for several months uh, with Ben Lizzie. Scott Gorham called and said, hey, I know you're in Def Leppard, but do you, you fancy playing with Ben Lizzie for, for a while? And, and that was such a, a big, big thrill for me because Lizzie were so important to me. Um, so influential to me as a guitarist in my formative years when I was a teen, you know, the, the Geobrick album and Johnny the Fox, uh, Live and Dangerous, Black Rose, Renegade, Chinatown, those those records were very, very, very important to me as a guitar player. So it was a real thrill to actually be able to go on tour and play with, with Scott and with Brian Downey and, and to play those songs. So it, it really kind of reignited a passion for me for, for guitar playing that I, I'd kind of lost for a while, you know, yeah. um, and you know, talk, talking about Def Leppard earlier, I mean, my, my gig with Leppard is, is very challenging to me as a singer. Uh, you know, we're on the mic on every song, and, and the guitar parts, in and of themselves, are, are challenging enough, I suppose. But but not compared to the stuff I played in Dio, or even later with River Dogs, you know. So I kind of hadn't really had to exercise that muscle for a few years with Leppard, and then having to go out and play Black Rose every night with Thin Lizzy you know, kind of got me back into shape. And, and I came off of that tour thinking, you know, this is what I do and this is what I want to do. So I actually just called up Vinny Apathy and Jimmy Dean and Claude Schnell. And um, I said, hey, you want to get together and just play? And so we did. We went to the rehearsal room for a few hours. And we were in there playing for about 30 minutes or so. And Vinny Apathy said, this would be even better if we had a singer. He said, I know a great singer, a guy called Andrew Freeman. He only lives 10 minutes away. Let me give him a call and see what he's doing. So... About an hour later, Andrew walks in. I'd never met him before, you know, but he, we say our hellos. He steps up to the mic and starts singing, and it just it blew our socks off. I mean, it was, it was so amazing. He has such a powerful voice and such a great, passionate range, um, and yet he sounds nothing like Ronnie, but he could really bring his own thing to this. And so it, it kind of took it to another level. So we all just kind of looked at each other and said, well, let's, let's do this some more. Let's take it to the next stage, which would be, let's go out and do some gigs. And then and I suggested, let's call this Last in Line, you know, after the, the album. And um, So there, here we are. I mean, that was over a year ago. It's taken this long to get it together, but we're finally uh, putting the wheels in motion. We have some UK shows coming up early August. 
Uh, we're going to do a warm-up show in Southern California on August 3rd. Oh, cool. And uh, that, that's going to be our first outing. And then we, we were booked for a festival in Japan in October. And we were hoping to take it beyond that and, and actually, you know, do a more comprehensive tour of the States and whatnot. So it's it's great fun. I mean, it's great excitement to play those songs again. Um, and for me, it was a big hurdle to overcome because for literally for decades, for 20-plus years, I didn't even listen to those albums, right. never mind try to play those songs. I mean, it, there was so much hurt involved in that whole situation with me. It left such a bad taste in my mouth, I just didn't even want anything to do with it. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, with the passage of time, and, and like I say, maybe with, with Ronnie's passing as well, that's part of it, you know, but um, I certainly look at it in a very different light now. I mean, it, it's, it's my heritage, it's Jimmy's and Vinny's. You know, Jimmy and I wrote those songs with Ronnie, and uh, we made those records, and... and you know, we're out there reclaiming our heritage, basically. And you guys have a site up, lastinlinerocks.com, which we will link through today's show notes. Any uh, any discussion about what the actual set list will be? Well, we haven't completely finalized yet, but it's basically going to pick itself. I mean, it's going to be, there's only nine songs on Holy Diver. I think there's only nine songs on the Last in Line album, too. Um and the thing about this band was the Sacred Heart album was, was very difficult for us all to make. Um, that's when things started to go wrong with the band, and nobody really wanted to be in the studio with Ronnie. And we literally would just come in and we'd do our parts, and we wouldn't really hang out. Whereas with Holy Diver and, and Last in Line, we were in the studio 24-7. Everyone was committed to making those records. So so the Sacred Heart record, it's yeah, we, we don't look upon it as favorably, you know, so right. we probably won't play too much from that. Yeah, and, um, and I mean, over the because over the passage of time, those first two records have become such, you know, classic among the, the metal fan base that uh, they're probably what people are going to want to hear the most anyways. Well, well, exactly, and you know, we're going to have to play, if we're doing our own headline shows, we're going to need to play about an hour and a half at least, so we're going to need to play basically everything off of those first two albums. And, uh, you know, we'll for sure play everything off of Holy Diver and probably the, the majority of Last in Line and a couple from Sacred Heart. Now, when you go back in time and think about first teaming up with Ronnie Dio, I, I wanted to uh, ask you about Ronnie's status in Black Sabbath. Uh, Tony Iommi mentions in his book that Ronnie was actually working on what would become the Holy Diver album while he was still in Black Sabbath. Ronnie and Vinny, for that matter. Is that how you remember it? Um, when we first got together, Ronnie had two songs. He had Holy Diver title track itself and Don't Talk to Strangers. They were the two songs that were written when we when the band formed. Um so, yeah, I suppose Tony's right in that regard. I mean, if he didn't offer those songs to Black Sabbath, then Ronnie was keeping them for himself. But that's that's definitely all we had. And then we, uh, the band, we first met in London, at a rehearsal room in London in uh, October 1982, or late September 1982, somewhere around then. Um, and then about a month later, we relocated out in, in L.A., and that's when we started writing the rest of the album. Cool. And... Holy Diver, obviously a classic. You mentioned you probably will be playing it almost every song, if not every song off that album, which is, is sounds amazing. What about Last in Line? That came out in 1984, and, and it just exploded, selling over a million copies. What are you, some of your favorite songs off that album? Um, 
Evil Eyes is a hidden gem on that record. I always thought it would do a bit more. Um, the title track itself, Last in Line, that, that did set the tone for it. And it was one of the earlier ones. It was one of the first ones we came up with. Yeah. Um, so we knew, you know, once we had that under our belt, it, it was it was, uh, it, it was smooth sailing for us. You know, we knew we had this epic title track for the record. And, and uh, you know, other songs we were actually finishing while we are in the studio. I remember Ice Speed at Night was one that we, we cobbled together actually in the studio towards the end of the album. I don't know, there's, there's a lot of great songs on the record, you know. Um, but prob- probably the title track is obviously the standard, for me especially. Cool. And you used to, when you were with Ronnie, you would occasionally play like Mob Rules or, you know, Man on the Silver Mount- Mountain. Do you envision playing those songs in the set list for The Last in Line? I, I don't think... I. I I don't think it would be legitimate for us to do that. I mean, obviously, the original deal band, we played Man in Silver Mountain, Stargazer, Long Live, Rock and Roll. Uh, we played Heaven and Hell, Mob Rules, Children of the Sea. You know, we, we would kind of fill out our EO set with those songs, and, and those were legitimate enough for us to do because Ronnie had been in those bands and he had written those songs. Um, without Ronnie there, I, I don't think it's very legitimate to play Sabbath or Rainbow songs, so... We won't be doing that. <laughs> what, are, what are your memories of the Last in Line tour? You guys uh, just did super, super long tour for that record. You took out a lot of bands that later would uh, would kind of explode, like Twisted Sister, Queensryche, and Dokken. Any uh, any memories of the opener opener bands from that tour? Um, yeah, I, I remember certain shows better than others. I mean, I, I specifically remember touring with Dokken. I actually just saw Jeff Pilsen the other day, and we were reminiscing about that. Um, it was the whole production for Dio had gone to a different level. Um, Ronnie was always big on presentation and a stage set and whatnot, and even on Holy Diver, we tried to do something. Um, but with Last in Line, you know, he had he had a bit more money to spend on it, and they had a bit more time to put it together, and he came up with uh, the big old pyramid and, you know, for the first time we started using lasers and pyrotechnics and stuff and it, it definitely had, had taken it to a whole different level, you know, and with the last in line tour we had gone from playing theaters and opening for other people to pretty much exclusively headlining arena shows in the States, so it had definitely been a step up for the band, you know, and uh, it was a big tour, as you said, it was rather a long tour. Um, and the band was really on fire. I mean, that's something I really remember about those first two tours, Holy Diver and Last in Line. I mean, the, the chemistry within the band was so good and it was so tight. You know, it was really uh, very, very, very magical on a musical level, you know. Right. And then, unfortunately, the wheels started to come off from there on out. Right. In, uh, I guess it was after Last in Line, you, you wrote a song with Ronnie and I believe Jimmy called Stars, which was known as the Hearing, Hearing Aid Project. And uh, as a kid, that was just such an amazing moment in heavy metal history, seeing all our favorite, you know, hard rockers and heavy metal guys get together for, I guess, what would be the music video and, and uh, recording of that. Any memories of that that day when you shot the music video and had just so many different people from so many different bands there? Yeah, I remember that well. Um, I remember being exhausted. I mean, it, it was really, really hard work putting all that together, you know, contacting all these people, and I didn't know them. I mean, I, I was calling... I remember talking to John Bon Jovi. In the end, we didn't get him in. 
for one reason or another. But, you know, I'd never met the guy in my life. I just happened to track down his phone number, and I called, and I talked to his mother, and I talked to him. And, yeah. you know, this, the same with, with, um, with, with everyone who was involved. I didn't know any of these people. You know, I just I tracked down their phone numbers with, with the help of a publicist that we were working with at the time and, and just, you know, beg, steal, and borrow. I mean, I was just on, I was on the phone for weeks and weeks and weeks leading up to that, trying to get people to commit to do it. And um, it all it all basically happened out of a joke. Um, Jimmy and I were at uh, Los Angeles radio station KLOS, and we were doing an interview about something. And um, We Are the World, the whole Michael Jackson thing had come out around then. And, and the DJ said to us, you know, he says, oh, it's a real shame that no one from the hard rock community was invited to participate in that thing. You know, and we were all, yeah, yeah, you know, we get no respect, blah, blah, blah. And so Jimmy... We just sort of jokingly said, yeah, we should do our own. And Jimmy just, like, didn't miss a beat. He came out with the title, Hearing It. He said, yeah, we'll call it Hearing It. So, so we had a bit of a chuckle about that. And we left the studio, and, and Jimmy and I kind of looked at each other. Well, are we serious? Are we going to do this? And we thought, yeah, why the hell not? So we, Jimmy and I were sharing an apartment at the time in L.A. So we went back to the apartment. We wrote the song that night. Um, we brought it to Ronnie to write lyrics on it, because we knew we wouldn't be able to get anywhere without Ronnie's involvement. Right. Um, and we brought it to Ronnie, and at first he didn't want to know, but he wasn't interested. Um, but about a week later, uh, we got a call from Wendy, and she, was, she said, well, Ronnie'd like to participate in this, and how's it going? And, you know, she wanted to know about the business parameters, and I can't explain that there weren't any. It was just me and Jimmy and a phone book. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, so, yeah, we, we put a lot of work into that, you know, and then it was great to see it finally come together, you know, um, and hopefully it did the job. I mean, you know, it, it, it was it, it was supposed to raise money for charity, and then as far as we know it did, but to be honest, it was taken out of our hands after a certain stage, you know. Mm-hmm. Jimmy and I just did a lot of the grunt work. Interesting. Great stories, by the way. And, it, you know, the one... You know, I guess Kiss wasn't involved in the recording and Rush wasn't, but then they later provided a song for the uh, the full length record that came out. Uh, but everybody was always scratching their head as to uh, why Ozzy Osbourne wasn't involved. And was that because there was kind of some conflict between him and Dio back in those days? To be honest, I don't really know. Like I say, I mean, we we took it. I took it personally as far as that day when we cut the track. And we had all those people, and from that point on, Wendy Dio took it over. Right. And I have no idea. It's quite possible that there might have been animosity between Ozzy and Ronnie at that stage. Um, I really didn't know, because I, I didn't know Ozzy Osbourne, and to this day, I still don't. Mm. So I have no idea. Right. Right on. Great. Well, we are very excited about the Last in Line band, which is basically the which is the original Dio lineup with a new singer. Can you tell me the singer's name one more time? Andrew Freeman. Andrew um, Freeman. Vinny Appice brought him in. Uh, Vinny worked with Andy in uh, Minch Mob for a while. I'm not sure exactly when, but that's, ah. that's where their relationship stems from. Cool. Well, we can't wait to hear them. We really hope that uh, there are some additional U.S. dates besides just the, the uh, Los Angeles date that you mentioned. Hopefully, we'll see you in the New York, New Jersey area at some point. There, there will certainly be a U.S. tour. I don't know if we'll get it together for later this year or if it'll be sometime next year, but undoubtedly it will happen. Excellent. Vivian, thank you so much for joining us. We wish you the best uh, with your health and hope for uh, a speedy recovery. Thank you very much, Mark.
What you just heard was my interview with Vivian Campbell and the classic Dio song, Evil Eyes. A big thanks to Vivian for checking in with us on Talking Metal. Big thanks to Matt Snow. Go to our Facebook page, our Talking Metal Facebook page, and give it a like. That's a way you can support the show. You can also support the show using our iTunes links and Amazon links. You guys know all about that. Any song that you've heard in today's show and you want to hear in full, you should go to TalkingMetal.com, use the iTunes links to open your iTunes. That'll take you directly to that song, and you can purchase it and listen to it in full. And we're going to end with a little more Magnus Rising. This song is called Drill, and it's off Magnus Rising's latest album, Whatever It Takes. Definitely support these guys. They're an independent band, and they need your support. Thank you, guys. Thanks to everybody who made today's show possible. Thanks to Vivian and Matt, and right now, without any further ado, here is The Drill by Magnus Rising. Fuck. 
Lost while you 